0: So Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks.
1: Our second reading is from uh, the Legend of the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God.
2: What is our view of other Christians? Do you avoid other Christians? Or do you spend time with them? Do you like other Christians? Or do you love them? Do you merely high-five the other Christians that you might see around the place? Or do you long to be of help to them? Do you criticise what other Christians do? Or do you pray for them? Are you basically lukewarm about other Christians? Or are you passionate about them well the apostle paul was pulsating with passion for fellow believers that's plain in this letter he wrote to christians in philippi and that passion wasn't simply because of how the apostle paul was wired as if that was his thing his quirk while well, we see in paul the passion for other christians that should mark every believer each of us And in this letter, Paul isn't just going to model it for us. He's going to explain and equip us to be like him in this. So for the past few weeks, I've been pondering Philippians in preparation for this summer series. I have been challenged, as I think all of us will be. Life will not be able to stay as it is. But I think more than that, I've become increasingly excited that we are looking at this letter, this term. Because what we find here will do nothing less than revolutionize our life as a congregation here at the 4pm. Not that we aren't living like this at all already, but rather, if we give ourselves in these coming weeks to listening to what God has to say here, and we realize again the wonder of Christ and all we have in the gospel, and then together work through the implication the Apostle Paul draws out for us, Well, come July, which is the end of our series, we will be transformed people, a different congregation. That will be very good news for us. It'll also be very good news for the world around us. Above all, it will be to the glory and praise of God. So let's dive into this letter. And in just the first couple of verses, Paul lays down markers for us of where his emphases are going to be. Did you notice how verses one and two were read? We're on page 1179, 1179. Those first couple of verses are full of people. Paul, Timothy, and then he speaks of the saints in Philippi. By saints, he simply means Christians, all Christians. So were Paul writing to us today? Saint Sean, Saint Isabel, Saint Alan, Saint George, and I won't name everybody. But you get the point. We are all saints because we are Christians. And then in those verses included in the saints are the overseers and deacons, that is those in church leadership in Philippi. And of course, in those opening verses, there is one individual mentioned in particular. And in fact, Paul, you might say, overdoes it. Can you see that with the repetition? Three times in two verses, Jesus. Look at the titles, Christ, God's promised King, the Lord of all. And in fact, in the rest of our passage, Paul names Jesus another four times. I wonder if you noticed that as it was being read, or did we just think, oh, it's the Bible, that's always there. No, Paul, well, the Philippians knew about Jesus, they'd heard about him. But still, Paul, as he writes, can't stop talking about Jesus. And in particular, as Paul writes to those Philippians, he tells them, or no doubt reminds them, who they really are. Just there at the beginning, he calls them the saints in Christ Jesus. That is their identity. That is their life. If you like, that is their everything. They are in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, they are in two places at once. So yes, they are in Philippi, this city in northern Greece but also in Christ Jesus. So again, if Paul were writing to us here at St. Helens, he would say something like to all the saints in St. Helens in 21st century London, who are in Christ Jesus. And this is key. We need to realize what that means, delight in it, and then live like it. And Philippians will help us to do that. And then Paul says, verse two again, in his opening verses, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a common way, for Paul to open his letters. But again, we might miss what he is saying. Notice his focus immediately. It's not about what we do for God, but instead on what comes from God to us. Now, first word, what do we receive? Grace. It's all about God's astonishing kindness to those who don't deserve it. So here's the start. Paul's writing about Christ. The focus is on his grace. And Paul has in mind people people in Christ like those Philippians and like us today well then as he really gets going what is his attitude to these Philippians verse 3 I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy Paul is bursting with thankfulness and with joy why is that has he won the lottery He had a great holiday, maybe his sports team won yesterday, but of course not at all. All of Paul's energy, all of his affections are invested in fellow Christians. So positive news about them thrills him. And so therefore Paul says he thanks God. He knows that all he's heard about the Philippians is due to God's work in them, so he turns it to that prayer of thanks, And already Paul is starting to challenge us as we read along in this letter. What excites us? What makes us happy? Is it seeing other Christians doing well? That gets us so fired up. How often do we turn that then to thank God simply for these other Christians and how they are getting on? So what gives Paul this confidence in these Philippians? Verse 5, he says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here Paul speaks of the gospel. That is the message, as we heard in Acts 16, that Paul himself took to Philippi. So the local magistrates in Philippi had obviously thrown Paul in prison for his efforts. But then there was that earthquake and we heard the jailer had asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And the answer Paul gives summarizes this gospel message. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That is, recognize that Jesus, the man who walked our earth, is in fact Lord of all. See that we are in danger because of our sin, the judgment it deserves. We need to be saved, hence that question. And then recognize Jesus can save because of his death and resurrection. And in response, we need not contribute anything because it's by grace. As Paul put it to that jailer, simply believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What a glorious message. And that's just what the jailer did. He believed. That's what those in Philippi did. And that's what each of us have done. If we are Christians, and then Paul, here in verse 5, speaks of that gospel, but particularly partnership in the gospel. Now, we're all used to the idea of being partners, particularly if like in business, partners in the firm. And of course, around us here in the city, many in their career are longing to one day being made partner. Well, I've got great news. As Christians, you've made it. You are partners in the gospel firm. But what does that mean? The point is, those who believe this gospel, this good news about salvation from freedom and salvation from judgment in Christ, well, they realize this gospel message cannot just be for them. If you've truly grasped the gospel, there's no way that you can just think, great, I'll have that and then carry on with my life just as I did before. This week, you may have heard, saw the death of George Verra. He was the founder of the worldwide mission organization, Operation Mobilization. His story, as a boy, he was often in trouble. He once lit quite a serious fire in a forest. On another occasion, he got caught by police breaking and entering. But in his last year of high school, he was age 16, he went to a gospel talk. He was utterly amazed by what he heard, and he believed it. Looking back, he said he realised that night, quote, This is the truth. My search is over. This is the most important thing in my life. And in fact, he knew not just for his life. He just couldn't keep this news to himself. For a start, he got hold of a 1,000 copies of John's Gospel, and gave one to each of the fellow pupils in his school. Because Verwa had realised it's obvious. This gospel, if true, has got to be the most important thing. It's got to get out. People need to hear it. And so Paul speaks of this partnership in the gospel. So that includes us as given opportunity to speak to others. But again, we don't just do it ourselves. This thing is so important it's got to be a joint effort, even we might say partnering with others. It's something to do with them. And then if I see others who are trying to do this in need of help and support, well, I'm here. I'll help and support them. And this partnership we're going to see throughout this letter. Paul, as we've seen, worked to make the gospel known, did that in Philippi. And Paul realized the Philippians ever since then have supported him in his ministry right from the beginning. And it wasn't just a mere initial convert's enthusiasm, you might call it, which quickly then waned away. Paul says they'd kept going from the first day until now. Because gospel partnership is a lifetime commitment. And seeing this in the Philippians gave Paul great confidence. We've reached verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the day. question is, what are you living for? Or to put it another way, when are you living for? Is it the day when you qualify? Or the day you get married? Or the day you can put down the deposit? Or the day dream holiday or the day you have children or the day you pay off the mortgage or the day you can retire, whatever it is. What is the day that controls your diary and therefore what fills your life and your thoughts now? Well, the day of Christ is approaching. It's a wonderful prospect. The living Lord Jesus will return visibly and physically and personally to our world. Well, for those who continue to resist him, it'll be a terrible day. They need saving from that. But for believers who already know the Lord Jesus, we've heard his promise that when he returns, he'll give us new bodies so that we can go and be with him in a perfect place forever. And if you know that, that is the day that will shape your thinking. And it controlled Paul's mindset. And he was excited because he knew the Philippians would be there with him, standing on that day. And notice verse 6, not because of their own effort. It was God who'd started the work in them, and Paul trusted God to finish that work. And that's what we could see in George Vera. He continued just as he started, as I mentioned. He established a worldwide mission organisation. But quite apart from that, just if you like, so to speak, in his personal life, remember how he started? It's estimated that during his life, Vera personally gave out hundreds of thousands of gospels and other Christian literature to people that he met, maybe even a million. And then on his deathbed, it was literally his deathbed, literally last week, he produced his final video blog. What would be his legacy? Well, he said he hoped that it would be a passion for reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God had begun that good work in George Verwa, and over nearly 70 years, he now brought it to completion. So Verwa will be there on the day of Christ. And so too with us. That's the assurance of this verse. If we started out with Christ, trusting him, that was God's work. He'll finish the job. We can look forward to that day with eager expectation. And Paul underlines this in the case of the Philippians. Look down now to verse 7. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now partakers is actually another partnership word. So again, Paul is thinking of himself and the Philippians as partners, partakers, that is they are active together in this gospel ministry. But notice he does say they are partakers, partners in grace. What does that mean? Well, he's reminding them and himself that however busy and active they are in gospel ministry, it's only because they already know all they already have guaranteed in Christ by grace. But that grace has driven them into action. So, what did this partaking of grace look like for these Philippians? Read on verse 7. Partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, if we were unaware of Paul's situation as he wrote, that would have come as quite a surprise to us, don't you think? Because the tone of this letter so far has been thankfulness and joy and a full heart. And yet now we discover. Paul is writing from prison. The former tennis player, Boris Becker, he's recently been released from jail and he commented on his release, whoever says that prison life isn't hard and isn't difficult, I think, is lying. You fight every day for survival. And that's in a 21st century British prison. A first century prison was all the tougher. Such deprivation and shame mistreatment and for Paul knowing all the way through there was no good reason for this whatsoever so unjust so harsh and yet his heart is full of joy now as we gather on a Sunday week by week we ask each other don't we how are you and if our response and how we feel is all tied up with our personal circumstances how work's been how the kids are getting on the state of our health, or maybe the finances, then this challenges us. Something is amiss. It must be that the wonder and reality of Christ and the gospel and grace, the coming day of Christ, aren't yet shaping our thinking as they should. And Paul would say they need to, because as for him, so for us. Because faithful living for Christ in 21st century London will inevitably lead to opposition. To varying degrees at different times. If we're not aware of any other Christians who are facing tough times for their faith at the moment, well, maybe we don't know the Christians around us very well. Why not, as we head over to Feud of Fives afterwards, actually just ask the question Where are you finding it tough standing up for the Lord Jesus at the moment? And then when we do discover how others are facing hostility, well, how will we then react? On Thursday evening, Manchester United played Sevilla, and Man United's defender, Martinez, was badly injured. He had to be carried off the field. But it was done by two of the Sevilla players. Why did they do it? What was going on? Well, it turns out both of those severe players were from Argentina, just like Martinez. And at that moment, the colour of their kit didn't matter. There was a stronger bond between them. Now, we differ, don't we, from those around us in all sorts of ways, different cultures and backgrounds, different life experiences, maybe different seniority at work or at school, maybe People who, in worldly terms, we'd have little interaction. And yet, with fellow Christians, we share the same Heavenly Father. We serve the same Lord. We are on the same gospel team. And that is true all the time. But in particular, when a fellow gospel player is having a hard time, we will step forward and carry them. As the Philippians did, when Paul suffered, the Philippians didn't just drift off to the sidelines. They weren't ashamed, quite the opposite. They acted, even when costly, they provided for Paul. They kept the partnership going. And that's just one instance of a more general pattern. Verse 7, Paul says they were also partakers, that is partners, in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. Well, again, this is the gospel, the message that needs to be made known. And if it's attacked, then defended by believers. And the Philippians were ready to stand beside Paul to do that. Just think again of George Vera and that gospel talk he heard at an event. Just think what was needed to make that one-off event happen. Well, someone organized the event. People served practically to make it happen. People covered the cost of the event. Someone invited Verwa to that event. And then someone spoke the gospel message at that event. Do you see? Gospel partnership in action. In fact, it turns out there's more. It turns out that when young George had that scrape with the law, an older lady across the street from where he lived heard about it. And so she started praying for him regularly to come to Christ. And that's what happened. Again, gospel partnership. And then you could think of Erwa's life and ministry quite apart from all those in the mission organization with him, all those who stood beside him when he kept getting thrown out of different countries for speaking the gospel. Just think again of his giving out gospels and Christian books. Even that, well, someone must have written those books those who work to produce them and print them, those who paid for them. Again, gospel partnership. And that's what the Philippians were like, looking for ways to partner with Paul in the defence of the gospel. And then also in the confirmation of the gospel. What's Paul getting at there? Well, because it's not just non-Christians who need the gospel. We Christians need to get to know the gospel better, if you like, to have it confirmed to us, to be established and strengthened in it. And again, we work in partnership to help fellow believers with that. So let's ask, how am I doing that? How am I helping other Christians to get to know this message better? That's what Paul was doing alongside the Philippians. So as Paul saw all this effort, the Philippians were pouring out for the gospel at such great cost, he knew they are obviously believers. He was so confident God must be at work in them by his grace. And Paul is thrilled, even, verse 8, he yearned for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, Well, let's just pause for a moment. I wonder how you're feeling at this point from what we've heard from Paul so far. It's only encouraging, isn't it, to hear of Paul's joy in his trials or this commitment and hard work of the Philippian believers. But I hope we are just feeling a little bit daunted by it because the gospel hasn't changed. We have the same gospel of Christ. We have received the same grace of God. We are looking forward to the same day of Christ And we can see that this is the sort of behavior that should mark our lives as well. But at least how can our commitment to the gospel be worked out in our relationships with others and with our fellow believers? Which brings us, I think, to why Paul does what he does next in this letter. We've already heard that Paul is praying for these Philippians regularly with joy. But what then is he praying for them? What's the content of his prayers? And so Paul tells us, verse nine, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's what we need, isn't it? Help to love others as we should. It makes sense because in Christ, who are we? We are those who have received so much grace and love from God. It makes sense that love is now to overflow to others around us, but we find it so hard to do. And so Paul prays to that end. And we need to pray this more and more. Maybe think of when maybe other Christians are making our life difficult. How are we tempted to respond? Let's pray that we will love them more. Or as you think of your RML group and you think, oh, what can I be praying for them? Well, here's what to pray for them. They would abound in love more and more. But then in practice, how do we love better? Well, of course, for a start, we need to know what love is. The world tells us love is love, and the results are disastrous. What we need, verse 9, Paul says, is knowledge. That is knowledge of God and his ways. Knowledge of how God would have us relate to others. In love. That's why we study the Bible, so that we can love others better with this knowledge. And with that, again in verse 9, we need discernment. So now Paul is saying, in the nitty gritty situations of life and relationships and gospel ministry, well, what are the important issues? How should those Bible truths work out in practice in our lives and in the lives of those around us? For example, what should we stand up and fight for? And what should we simply let go? Christians have a reputation, deserved, I guess, for squabbling and arguing, even over the most trivial things. Instead, how can we work together in gospel partnership? That's why we need discernment to stop those rivalries happening. So let's pray for it, for knowledge with discernment, so that we can love one another more and more. And what will follow from that? Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul knows that too often in our Christian lives we are satisfied with mediocrity. Paul is praying that we would pursue excellence. That is, if we are growing in love, shaped by knowledge and discernment, we will be able to prove what is excellent we will be able to see the way forward we'll realize what it is we need to think and say and do and then as Paul says that will lead to purity of heart on the inside and a blamelessness in what is seen of our actions and words on the outside let us again verse 10 again how all this is with the day of Christ in view and actually keeping the day of Christ front and center will actually make much of this decision-making in how to love a lot more straightforward. Given the certainty of Jesus' return in glory one day, then I should say, well, what should I do now? What difference will that make to how I love others today? And then verse 11, such an encouraging end for these opening verses where Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, for the glory and praise of God. A final reminder that as we look to the day of Christ, none of this is about getting into God's good books. What a relief. In Jesus Christ, it's all been done. We have it all already by grace. But that will transform our lives now. We are in partnership with fellow Christians because we have this wonderful gospel of Christ We have been freed to make our lives about love for others. And we do all of this, not for our own sake, but to the glory and praise of God. I'll lead us in a closing prayer. Our Father, we do praise you again for this gospel of Jesus Christ. For Jesus, who by grace has saved us from our sin and given us this great confidence as we eagerly anticipate the day of his return. And so we ask that we would live our lives now to your glory and praise, that we would work in gospel partnership with fellow believers, that our love would abound more and more, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ.
1: Amen.